0: Hey good morning everyone. Welcome to Echo Church. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, I'm glad you're here. Um, we are a church that is on the ground. It was funny. Uh, recently I heard Adam Scrock, um, he was telling somebody about Echo while he was in front of me and I didn't realize how many cliches he used that were mine. We, gotta, we roll up our sleeves, we get into the mess, like those are the kinds of things that we say, but basically we take the faith of Jesus Christ, and we not only preach it, we not only live it, we not only talk about it, but we want to be shining examples of it to the world around us, and so we're not going to be afraid to bring light into the darkness. And uh, that's, that's the general DNA of who we are. We're called Echo because we reflect the love of God. It's, we're not necessarily the source, um, but God has loved us in such magnificent ways, and so we then love the world, and we try to do it in very tangible, practical ways practical ways. We are in a series. This is uh, lesson number three in a series that's really, I mean, it's going to eventually lead us all the way to Easter, and it began with a question that, that I asked a long time ago, actually, and, um, and I didn't ask it. I just began to sort of ponder the question, and that was, what does it mean to know Jesus? You know, if you were to type in in your Google search, knowing Jesus, or what does it mean to know Jesus? Oh, man, you get ready. Like you'll, you'll produce a number of articles and they'll be all over the place, right? Many times they're talking about salvation, right? If you really want to know Jesus Christ, then you need to surrender your life to him, become his disciple. And, and so there's this point of salvation and then you'll really get to know Jesus. Maybe. You see, I kind of look through the Bible and I see tons of stories about a bunch of guys that quite frankly were kind of idiots and they were getting to know Jesus quite well. That was before their salvation, or at least to the point of salvation, right? What does it mean? What does it mean to know Jesus? And so what I did was I reached into my own past and then also into my own learning, and I used this communication event, and I talked about the fact that because I'm a communicator, I I know how to speak that language, and, and essentially what we have is communication happening all over the place throughout the world and there's a channel that that happens and if I'm going to send a message over to Brett you know I'm, I'm going to encode a message into a particular channel which will probably be my voice and then he's going to hopefully receive it he'll decode it and it'll mean almost exactly what it was meant to mean when I sent it right and then he'll send me feedback he'll be like yeah yeah you get a raise you know that kind of thing <laughs> and uh yeah. subtle right? Um, No, I'm just kidding. So, uh, But that's generally the idea of the communication event. But what's great about it is this, is that there's a theory that I've kind of put into the communication event, and it has to do with love. I think love affects the communication event. I think it improves it. I think Christians become some of the best communicators in the world, because what you have to do is realize that there is this thing around you that's called a worldview. It's everything that you understand about the world. It's the things you believe, it's the things you observe, it's the history that you have, it's the mistakes that you made, it's your victories, it's your success, it's everything, whether it's true or not. And that collides with someone else's worldview. But when you love them, when you really love them, especially when they're difficult to love, you're drawing them closer and closer, and those worldviews are becoming more and more enmeshed, and guess what? When you are immersed into someone else's worldview worldview, The communication channels are more efficient. They're more clear. They filter out this thing called noise. And communication happens. Talk to any missionary, they'll tell you the exact same thing. If you were going to send missionaries to Africa, they'd spend at least three years learning the language, learning the culture, learning what humor is in that country. They're not even talking about preaching gospel yet. They're just trying to immerse themselves and draw those worldviews into a space where they can communicate. So then, if we're going to talk about knowing Jesus, if we're going to listen to the message of Jesus Christ, do we follow the same pattern? And that's where we're at. We're saying, maybe we should look at these worldviews, the worldview that I have, and what God has been doing in my life and in your life. But then, let's also look at Jesus' life. I think too often, we, we have a plastic Jesus, you know, a little bobblehead Jesus that we put on our dashboard, you know, and we'll acknowledge now and then, and we think it's cute. Maybe we'll address Jesus on Sundays or maybe right before meals, right? But what does it mean to know him? So how do we draw ourselves to worldviews coming closer and closer? Well, guys, guess what? It takes work. If you go to Africa and try to learn those worldviews, trust me, you're going to study a lot. You're going to be in uncomfortable situations. You're going to have to force yourself to do things you normally probably wouldn't. I hate to say this, but getting to know Jesus is going to take work. It it just is, right? I, I hate this mentality that oh you just you need to just sit and 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 let him come to you type of a thing. Your relationship will not be deep. You got to know who he is, which means you got to work towards that. And so last week what I did was this I said remember that when we talk about the Bible specifically, the Bible is sending a message, right? It's through God's word and he, and and There's this message that's being sent from God to us, but it was sent through people. So God would download a message into a prophet or into a particular writer for some particular reason, and he would address at that time a specific receiver. But then there were timeless principles and timeless truths that then also flow through to us. How do we know which ones are ours, right? How do we know which ones are not? (laughs) You know, if you're going to read Titus... Trust me, we're all not going to go try to find Paul's cloak because he asks for it, right? And his important papers. Wait, that wasn't for us, right? But it's in, it's in the Bible. What do you do with that? Well, how are we going to use this text to understand Jesus better? And so last week I said, well, let's just, let's just dive in and talk about the people who talked about him most, which are going to be your four writers the, the gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we, we were looking at those particular Gospels and how they were written, the people that wrote them. I think many times people think, well, the apostles wrote them. No, no, <laughs> two of them did, right? Okay, trivia, those of you who are listening, who are the two apostles? Wow, I heard almost every gospel that time. <laughs> Matthew and John, right. Luke was what? A Position, Yeah, he was he was what, what what people call a historian's dream come true because he had all these details, wrote the longest book, and then he tagged on to that Acts. And so all together you have, what, 52 chapters in the, in the Bible that are written by Luke. So if anyone says Paul's, you know, the one who wrote the most, I don't, know, I don't know, we'll have to count the letters together or something. But Luke wrote a lot. And then mark Mark was very, you know, action-packed. He knows how to tell a story. He doesn't, you know allow himself to park on certain details like Matthew would or Luke would. Anyway, and so we talked about those four authors, and we talked about how they had these different styles, different purposes. They all came together, but here's the bottom line. Those four Gospels come together with a type of harmony. They create actually one narrative, and that's what we're looking for. And so today I'm going to be handing out some things, and I'm not ready to hand those out yet, but I will be handing you out some um, some more notes. Last week, I didn't make enough copies, but I want you to know I was just talking with Ethan this morning. We're going to make sure that there are copies of those particular notes because we had a comparative analysis of the Gospels with last week's lesson, and we'll make sure that that's up on the website next to the uh, the, the podcast. But I need you to also remember this: John 21 makes it very clear. Not everything was recorded. Not everything. In fact, isn't that kind of exciting? When you pass away, right, and you get to go to heaven, I just, I hope so much we have a DVD library and you get to watch things that you never got to hear about because Jesus did all sorts of stuff. We'll never know, right? And so not every detail is in there, but nothing has been omitted that wouldn't serve the purpose of bringing the gospel message to us. It's complete, right? Right? even though it's missing all sorts of different details. Well, that brings us to today. And I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. This is probably going to be one of the um, most b- boring, non-Jesus-y lessons. So I'm just going to preface it that way. But I'll explain. I'll explain. You know, when you go and you meet somebody, right? So if, if you're going to meet somebody for the, for the very first time, you know, um, when Ben and I met, we sat down for coffee, and the first question that he asked me uh, is, you know, Tell me about your insecurities. No, that's not what he said at all. <laughs> he would, though. <laughs> no, of course not, because we're not at that level of relationship. We're not even close to that. We haven't, there's hardly any immersion at all. Give me some examples of your first questions if you're going to meet somebody for the very first time. Well, where are you from, right? What else? What do you do for a living, right? Are you a Republican Democrat? No, see, still not there, No right? There's always a progression of questions, and I'm just going to be honest with you. Many times you will meet somebody for the first time. The conversation will last two minutes. You'll walk away, and you're not best friends, all right? That's this lesson, okay? But it's a necessary lesson. Just like meeting somebody for the first time is necessary, you have to get through that first layer, right? This is the first layer. Man, next week, buckle up, because we're asking some deeper questions. But we got to get through this layer first. And so that's why I'm saying this might be the most uh, non-Jesus-y lesson that we have. But, you know, you be the judge of that. Um, I want you to think about your own life. And in thinking about your own life, perhaps we can then transpose that onto how we view Jesus. I think life, well, let me put it to you this way. My mother told me a long time ago, you know, son, you have to think of life in chapters. And what she was telling me at the time was the next chapter is almost always better than the last. She was so wrong. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I totally agree, you know, and I look at my own life, and I kind of outlined it in, a, in, in different ways, and I have essentially kind of eight different chapters. My first chapter was just this incredible childhood that I had in Missoula, and I take that all the way to about the age of, of 20. I mean, it um, yeah, it was, it was it was fantastic growing up here. I had great parents. I, we didn't have very much money, which means we had to invent stuff all the time. My kids are always asking me, tell us stories about your childhood because we've got so many different stories. because so we had to invent fun, right? And we had to just play. And so we have a, I had a fantastic childhood, even though it had lots of bumps along the road. But then the second chapter was my idiotic chapter of life which was my college years it was probably the most tumultuous probably the most exciting but also definitely the most confusing and like I said I made a string of poor choices as I'm sure many of you who have gone through that chapter you might be able to agree with me and they're fun stories to share in fact now that my uh, sons are over the age of 13 I could tell them some of those stories you know of, of those college years my third chapter was my early married years and it was a sweet sweet chapter you know and when we counsel people with marriage, I always tell them, guess what? Y- you just need to be the two of you, if possible, if possible, for a few years. Because it's, it's such a great, great time. Because you're exploring things. And um, essentially, we got to a point where we said, hey, let's go to Atlanta. Yay. And so we went to Atlanta. And, and we started the next chapter. My fourth chapter was my Atlanta years, part one. Part one was I drove a concrete truck. <laughs> started a business on my own. <sighs> Crazy. And it was difficult, and I probably, I I put that down as a period of tremendous growth because I had both success, but then I also had massive failure. But at the same time, I had a marriage that was growing stronger and stronger. And then Atlanta years part two was my vocational ministry. When my concrete business fell, all of a sudden I found myself in vocational ministry. How about that? And uh, I was a a youth minister at uh, Burn Hickory Church of Christ, and it was a wonderful time Great time raising the kiddos also. And then my sixth chapter was I returned back to Missoula. That was my home. But my heart was heavy in a way it had never been before. There was a calling for the city that had never existed before. But now I was here. It wasn't homesick. And, and no offense to my family, it wasn't that I missed them. You know, it was, it was a calling to those that were without, you know, Jesus. But it was also very chaotic. Um in many ways, contentious, Um, and it was my final years with the Churches of Christ, and um, in many ways, I I mourn that, and in some ways, I kind of celebrate it, Um, but then my seventh chapter was the early echo years. That was usually, that was when I was working with YFC also, and those were also very difficult years, and then the later echo years, which I kind of count from about 2017 to present, and it's been very difficult, but also so exciting, And I feel like the chapters of life, even though they're difficult, at least for me right now, are very, very sweet. And I'm enjoying all of it. And those are the chapters. And you can look at your own life and think in different chapters. But that's what I want us to think about as we're looking at Jesus. You know, what are the chapters of life that he went through? And so uh, during my childhood chapter, my father handed me a book. I think he was probably concerned for my soul. And uh, it was called The Life of Christ. Now, uh, a few years ago, I asked my dad and I said, hey dad, do you have another copy of The Life of Christ? And he said, "Uh, um, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I said, by Irving Jensen. And he goes, yeah, I don't think that was me. (laughs) Which, you know, it's fine, but you know what? I eventually found my, my old copy, and I have all my notes from when I was a kid growing up. And what I love about it is this, is that when I was studying out of this particular book, Uh, The author here, Mr. Jensen, had some different charts and stuff, and so I'm going to share one with you. In fact, right now, Cole and Miles, if you guys can pass out the, the pages that I have, um, if you want a copy, or if you can share, I think last week I didn't make enough copies. But here's what I want us to do: I want us to just take a snapshot. We're going to look at the overview of Jesus's life. Now, listen, I'm going to put the PDF online as well. You'll be able to download it to your phone if you need to. But I encourage you that as we're moving through this idea of knowing Jesus, that you come back to this and you and you look at it because it'll be sort of a like a navigation device, all right, for us to sort of look at where we are with things. And so I'm going to go through uh, a lot of that in just, in just a second. What I'd like for you to do, though, is once you get that, you can flip over the first page. Um, I probably put these in the wrong order, but I really want you to look at the, um, the map that happens to be there. And that's where I want us to start um, for this morning. I want us to, to, to look at where he came from. So, you know, Jesus came to this earth, and he came to this earth in what year? Trivia. 4 BC. Steve put some leeway in there. 3 BC, maybe. Who knows? Ish is probably the best answer yet. All right, so around 4 BC or so, and he's put on this planet. This is the place where he was, was, was put on the planet, right? On earth. And so here he is, and he's in this little land that we would call at the time Palestine, all right? Now, today we would probably call it Israel, right? Um, Palestine is is an interesting word. Essentially, it means set in the midst. In the Old Testament, when people would talk about Palestine, they were actually talking about the land where the giants would live, which would also be referred to as Philistia. But then reference to that, especially in the New Testament, grew to pretty much all of what you see on that map, including what's on the other side of the Jordan River. So what's on the other side of the Jordan River is what we call Transjordan, or Decapolis, which means essentially that there are 10 towns or 10 villages in, in that particular uh, area. Um, and if you look on this particular chart, what I like about it is it gives you sort of the highlights of, of the different areas of, of where Jesus was and uh, of where the focus of so much of his story will be as we, as we walk through this. You'll see Galilee is, is there at the top, um, and oh, I'm sorry... What I keep referring to, let's see, so uh, Bashan is at the very top and uh, Perea along the side on the other side of near on in the Transjordan side and Judea down there near uh, Jerusalem, of course, and the Dead Sea and all the rest of it. And so I just want to kind of hone in on that just a little bit. If people were to say, what was the land like? I know growing up, I thought it was all desert. For some reason, you just think of Bible times being desert. I don't know if that's what the picture is that's in your mind. So when I flew over to Israel a few years ago, I was quite surprised. It is very green, and it's very lush, which is, I don't know why it should be a surprise. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is describing it. He says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. It's flowing, of flowing streams and pools of water with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and the hills, especially Galilee. Galilee is mostly spring-fed water, and so there's lots of grass and everything. It's a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. It is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills, according to uh, the account that Moses is giving to the people. In other words, he's really hyping it up. He's explaining to them, this is a sweet, sweet place to live. And it really is. So it's got that Mediterranean climate, which essentially means this, is that there is a rainy season, which stretches basically from about mid-October all the way to mid-April. And then there's a a dry season, which is from about June to September. So you have these these two seasons right here. But there's not much humidity. It's it's rather dry. You know, it's kind of a temperate climate. Um, And it's really a, a wonderful place to live if you go south though you're going to go to this place called the Negeb. then um, uh, it, essentially it's the root word meaning to be dry and it was what they refer to as the desert and so if you're looking at about Jerusalem and down it is very dry of course now you're getting into that area that we would know as the wilderness that's where Moses and them were we're walking along and, and whatnot but then also east of that um, below Perea the Dead Sea is fascinating just in the sense that um, it's one of the saltiest bodies of water on the planet. Is it, does it have the highest level of salinity? No, it does not. There are many times, I, I always thought it did, uh, but it does not, actually. That, that award goes to Lake Vanda in Antarctica, so whatever happened there, uh, who knows. But in terms of the lowest elevation on earth, it does get that award. Um, the Dead Sea is at uh, 1,360 feet below sea level. It's really fascinating. As you're driving out of Jerusalem and you're, and you're heading down into that particular valley, obviously the climate changes, but then you pass this, <laughs> this huge sign <coughs> that says you are at sea level. And then you look out over this valley. <laughs> I mean, you're still up on a mountain and the sign says, you are at sea level. And it's just, it's mind boggling. And you go all the way down into the, into the basin there. But basically the Jordan flows down into the Dead Sea. And so, of course, it traps all of the, the minerals and the, and the salt inside of there. What about Galilee though? So if you look at your map, what I like about this particular map, and this is a copy that you're going to find out of the NLT version that we have and we hand out to people that we do in this Bible um, uh, that usually is at the back of the room. But what I like about this particular diagram is that it's kind of showing you these are the things that happened in Jesus' ministry. And what do you notice? What do you notice about the number of incidents or teachings or miracles that are being performed? And what two areas do you see most of them happening. Yeah, J- the Jerusalem area, and then also in Galilee. Actually, Galilee is where most of it happens. Why? It's, it's kind of fascinating. Now, if you're going to read John's account, remember last week I told you, John is not exactly, um, he doesn't put a high emphasis on chronology, right? He's not looking to make sure everything's in, in order on the timeline. So he kind of has Jesus in Jerusalem pretty early on. But guess what? That might have been the case. It might not have been the case. Who knows? But he was in Galilee a lot. Why? What are, you, what are your thoughts? Any thoughts? Obviously the climate its really, really awesome. So if the climate, it's considered to be one of the luscious parts of Palestine. Right? In fact, uh, it's a fantastic place for shepherds or if you're going to grow wheat, that type of thing. You, you go to Galilee and, and you get land there because it's a fantastic place to be, which means what? It means it's going to probably be more populated it's probably going to be where a number of people are going to be and so jesus is going to go where the people are and that's exactly where he grew up anyway and so he's going to find himself kind of in his homeland but there's going to be a mass of people all around that lake all the way to this to the um the shore of the mediterranean sea but also remember this jerusalem is the center of the religiosity at the time okay now we're not just talking about jews We're also talking about the conflict that occurs between the Jewish people and the Romans, okay? And there was quite a bit of conflict at that time. You've got to keep in mind, Jesus says over and over, and we talked about this last week, he says over and over, we call it the messianic secret, do what? I just healed you, now don't do what? Tell anybody. And what's his point? We have to stay focused. Jesus wants to be focused on what's happening. He's not there to be the miracle worker. He's not there to be some political revolutionary. And so, in my opinion, I think it was in Galilee because he would probably find those who had ears to hear because they didn't have so much noise in the channel. I think he found an audience that had hearts that were already prepared, thanks to John the Baptist and others. But Galilee was obviously the place where he did quite a bit of uh, of his ministry. When we talk about travel routes, there were two travel routes. You're probably already aware of this. Uh, we did talk about this last year, but if you're going to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee, the most direct route is to kind of follow the mountains there. So there, that's a mountainous terrain. It's real pretty, kind of hilly and whatnot, but it's very direct. There's just one problem. What is it? It goes through Samaria, right? And the Samarians or Samaritans, and the Jews, well, they weren't exactly nice to each other. And so the other travel route was that they would actually go around that, and many times they would go across the Jordan River, and they would go on the Transjordan side all the way up to uh, the Galilee area, and so those were the two most common roads at that time. So now I just want to talk real quick about the politics of the day. Uh, what's interesting about, uh, about this particular area and about Palestine is, is there's so much conflict. In fact, It it becomes mind-numbing when you're you're researching this and learning about all of the conflict that preceded Jesus Christ. But we know this. The Jewish people had that land. It was theirs. God promised it to them. But they continued to fall into sin, specifically into idolatry, to the point that they were all taken into captivity. The most infamous, of course, is probably the Babylonian captivity. That would eventually fall to Syria, King Cyrus would allow people to come down and rebuild the temple, but there began to be these deportations where the Jewish people who were in Babylonia at the time, or Babylon, would come down and reestablish their lives in this land. But of course, then another superpower came into the picture, which would be what? Rome. And so Rome comes into the picture, and there's all sorts of turmoil, and we're not going to go through all the details of that, but there's this fascinating thing that happens specifically around the temple. Because you see, Caesar Augustus put in power this particular man named Herod. His name would be Herod the Great. Now, I want you to try to follow along. There are lots of Herods. This might be helpful for you. But when we're looking at the politics of the day, it's going to play a role specifically when we get to the climax of Jesus' story. So that's why this little small talk part is important. So Herod the Great cannot be, should not be, confused with Herod Antipas or Herod Agrippa. All right? All right. Herod Agrippa, you'll find in the book of Acts, he's the guy that gets eaten by worms, if you're familiar with your Bible stories. And if you're not, that's a great story. So uh, that's Herod Agrippa, and we're not going to be even addressing Herod Agrippa at this time. Uh, Herod the Great has several claims to fame. Claim claim to fames? Claims to fames? Claims to fames. Uh, he, uh, He built this incredible fortress over by the Dead Sea. Uh, I was able to to walk through it a little bit. It's called Masada. You've probably heard of the story where there was a Jewish revolt and they decided to overtake Masada. And that was their stronghold. And it was their stronghold for quite a while until the Romans were able to, through their ingenuity, build an earth ramp up to the top of it. You've got to see it. I've got pictures. I could tell you all about it. But that was his palace. That was his little getaway, right? That was his timeshare that he didn't give out to anybody, right? Herod the Great had this fortress built, but that's not the only thing that he did. He also helped with the second temple. Now, we've talked about this before. Remember, King Cyrus, hundreds of years earlier, allowed people to start rebuilding that temple. In fact, he felt that God told him. He's not a Jew, but he felt like that was being told to him, or at least that he had some divine purpose in allowing the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. So then how in the world would Herod the Great play a role in rebuilding the temple? Well, the bottom line is that the temple, when it was finished, was not even close to being, uh, let's just say, as spectacular as what Solomon's temple, the first temple, was. And so during the reign of Herod the Great, he decided that he would completely refurbish it. Now, that doesn't mean that he got his Roman citizens to go in and, and replace the curtains and stuff. No, he was actually very respectful with it. He, he simply passed the money to the Jewish leaders and they would do all the refurbishing of all of it. They, they expanded the temple mount. They um, overhauled all sorts of different um, edifices, all these different entrances and whatnot. He made one little mistake. He put a gold eagle at the top of the entrance to the temple. Maybe as a symbol of Rome, right? Probably just a little piece of pride. Of course, the Jewish leaders, they didn't like that at all. In fact, there was a, eventually there was a revolt, and um, people were killed, and so there was lots of um, bad blood that was already starting to develop. So by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, trust me, even though Herod did this wonderful thing for the Jewish people, they were not happy with who he was. They certainly weren't happy with his rule, and they would love to have had him replaced. He also was known to kill his kids. Uh, he killed uh, several of his sons, maybe out of fear. And of course, then he would uh, participate in what we all know as the massacre of the innocents, which would be that he would kill all these children, right? Trying to do what? Eradicate the Messiah, right? Whoever this person was that was being told to him was born. So he would get rid of it. Well, he's just going to get rid of all of them. So he wasn't exactly a nice man. But now here's where I want you to follow along. And in your... um, in your, your packet there, you'll see a little, um, basically it's, it's a chart talking about the territories and the rulers. So I want you to try to, to follow along as uh, best as possible. So Herod the Great ruled essentially from 43 B.C. to 4 B.C. Remember, Jesus is born 4 B.C. And so Herod the Great, uh, that's, that's his reign. Eventually, <laughs> eventually he would die. Um, it's funny because ABC uh, did a news story called Researches, I mean, uh, Diagnosing Herod the Great. Because he died from some illness, right? But there have been all these ancient manuscripts and history books that included his symptoms. And so this collection of doctors got together and said, oh, we know what that is. And so I'll read it to you. Um, Here it is. It was chronic kidney disease, but it was also complicated by a very uncomfortable case of maggot-infested gangrene of the genitals. Now, I'm not trying to be gross, but that's how he died. And then you also know later, another Herod would die, Herod Agrippa, also by worms. So it's not going well for you if your name is Herod. But Herod the Great, he's in power at this, at this particular time. And what happens is this, is he has these, these, these kids, but they're by different wives. He had five different wives. And so he killed several of his children. And then there's this kid named Ant- Antipater. Am I saying that right? Antipater? 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 All right. It it looks like Antipater, all right? Antipater II, all right? Antipater II was the oldest of his sons. He had a right to the throne. Um, But something happened. Essentially, what happened was this, is that after the execution of two of his sons, one of his kids had a daughter. Her name was Herodias. Herod, feeling sorry that he had created an orphan, essentially his grandchild you follow me so far Herodias, he decided to give her as a wife, to his second son, which is Herod II. Because he was able to give her to Herod II, it suddenly meant that Herod II now superseded Antip- Antipater Antipater II, for the throne. Antipater hated this, got upset, and complained to his father and said, I can't believe you would allow that to happen. Antipater built up a ton of resentment for his dad. And so Herod the Great obliged and said, all right, that's fine. We'll put you back down. You'll be the next in line. Of course, Antipater wanted to speed things along. So what he did was this. He tried to poison his father. So he was going to poison Herod the Great, The plan was found out, and he was executed. So now Herod II is going to inherit the throne. The problem with that is Herod II, his mom, who was no longer married to Herod the Great, knew about that plan to poison Herod the Great, didn't tell anybody, and someone found out about that. So they kill her, but also now Herod II is no longer in line for the throne. So the next person in line is this guy, um, Archelaus. So Archelaus, he wants all of it. He wants all of the land. The problem is this, is that during the reign of Herod the Great, Archelaus was serving under him and didn't do a great job of managing the people. In fact, things got so out of hand under Archelaus that he sent in some troops to kind of calm down some revolting Jews. The reason they were revolting is because they didn't want the eagle on top of their temple. And so 40 young men tried to revolt. They were killed. So now the Jewish people are upset. They stone the soldiers that Archelaus sends out. As a result, Archelaus then says you're going to do that to me, I'm going to hit you back, and kills 3,000 Jews. Archelaus kills 3,000 Jews. Caesar Augustus hears about this. He's not happy at all. He finds out that Archelaus is next in line for the throne. Archelaus has to go to Rome to plead his case. Please don't take this away from me. I will do better. So here's what Caesar does. He divides it. This is important. If you look on your map, you'll see that there's little red dots. I put those there myself. Little red dots. Caesar divides it. He essentially says, all right, I'm going to let you be the next in line, but you can only have half. You only get Judea and Samaria. That's what you get to rule over. The other half would then be divided by his next two sons. Those would be Herod Antipas and Philip the Tetrarch. Herod Antipas and Philip the Tetrarch. But here's what's fascinating, is that Herod Antipas, he somehow falls in love with Herod II's wife. Who is that? Herodias, who by the way, once again is his niece, if you're following my story, which is weird. Um, So he falls in love with her. She decides to divorce him. That's not how it works in Rome, but she somehow figures it out. She divorces him without his permission. Herod II is quite upset about this, and then marries Herod Antipas. You're going to read about that, because guess what? It didn't sit well with John the Baptist. Now someone else is in the picture, and that is the half-brother, which is Philip. Philip the Tetrarch, he is going to have a quarter of this kingdom up in Bashan, which is at the top of your map. He's going to be ruling that. He would marry this sweet little girl named Salome. Now, Salome happens to be the daughter of Herod II and Herodias. So Salome's dad was Herod II before they divorced. So they divorce, right, Herodias goes, and she's going to marry Herod Antipas. It doesn't sit well with John the Baptist. He's very public about it, which means by the time he's caught, guess what happens? Herodias is not happy with who he is. There's a contest. Salome dances for her father. You see where I'm going with this? Dances for her father, right, and wins this contest, which means she can have anything that she wants. She turns to her mother. She says, what would you like? And of course, Herodias is going to say, I want the head of John the Baptist. That's what I want. So she says that to Herod Antipas and so John the Baptist's head is is cut off and delivered to her. Salome would go on to marry Philip the Tetrarch and that's it's just getting started. So listen, I wanted to make sure that you understood all of that background because when Jesus comes on the scene and especially at his trial, you're going to hear these names. You're going to need to understand why in the world is he passing it off to Herod Antipas and now it's coming back and now, wait, what? You know, all this kind of stuff. I want you to understand, this is the climate. When you meet somebody, what do you say? Where are you from? Right? What do you do for a living? I want us to look again at this particular diagram real quick, just looking over all of the, now uh, I've lost my place in my notes. Just glancing over this overview, <coughs> I like this particular uh, chart that Dr. Jenkins puts puts together, or um, Jensen, Dr. Jensen puts together. Um, so yeah, so the you see uh, uh, essentially with this particular chart, you can kind of see by the different colors, the orange, the pink, the blue, and the green, that's where the Gospels talk about. That particular part of that that spot. But when you look at this, it's interesting how the Bible doesn't operate like perhaps most biographies, right? Where is the majority of text written in terms of Jesus' life? Over what amount of time in his life do we see so much written about? Three years, right? 36 months. I mean, when it comes to this idea that the, the preparation, I mean, we're, we're looking at Jesus. He's already lived at least a couple of decades, right? He's, he's in his upper 20s, 30s maybe, right there. And then we have the Bible talking about all of this. And what you're going to have is you're going to have this. The, he labels it as the obscurity. In other words, he, he kind of comes onto the scene. And, the, and other than John the Baptist saying, you know, prepare the way, prepare the way. The people know something's coming, but there's not a huge following just yet. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But then you see this increase in popularity. And as his ministries increase, you see this spike in his popularity. I disagree a little bit. I think his popularity continued to climb. I think it climbed all the way to the gates of Jerusalem of his triumphal entry. I think by the time he got to those gates, people were so excited. They knew who they had in front of them. They're putting their coats down, palm leaves, all the rest of it. He had quite a following. He had plenty of enemies as well, which is why opposition was also increasing at that time. I just think it was parallel. His popularity increased and his opposition was increasing. It's just amazing how quickly the people would turn on a dime. And if you look through history at the different conflicts that the Jewish people have had, whether it's with the Romans or maybe even with the Babylonians or whatever other people group they would come into contact with, you could see how volatile of a people they tended to be and how quickly they would turn. So I want you to just... Consider this, um, let this, this particular chart aid you as we go through these particular times um, <coughs> and allow this introduction to be something that structures the conversation moving forward. It's a little bit surface, I know. But here's the other thing that I know. Just like I started at the very beginning of this, Jesus has these chapters of life that he's about to, to walk through. You have chapters of life that God has brought you through I want to read a a scripture to you from Philippians sorry as soon as I find my other page there we go Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 through 8 says these words these are this is Paul You know, he's writing to the church in in Philippi. And so these are the words that he says. He says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others as well. You must have the same attitude that Christ had. So now we're getting into that place of, okay, attitude of Christ. What does that mean exactly? Do, Do we know what his attitude would have had? Well, Paul tells us. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to instead he gave up his divine privileges he emptied himself he took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being we will talk about this next week when he appeared in human form he humbled himself even further in obedience to god he died a criminal's death on a cross therefore god elevated him To the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence, as he's talking about Paul, in in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good what? Pleasure. I think what's fascinating is that so many times, We look at those difficult spots and I gave you eight chapters of my life, right? Makes me feel a little old, that's okay. But you have eight chapters of life and in every single one of those chapter, there's a question out of our humanity that says, okay, wait, so what's next? Like, I I don't understand. Where is this going? Or Lord, why have you led me here? I don't know how many people meet with me for coffee and they're like, I just don't understand what God's doing with my life. You need to understand something. Jesus felt that. I think we often think that he knew all that was going to happen. Oh, there were parts he knew. But he made it clear. I don't know. It's whatever the will of my father is. In other words, Jesus didn't even have the full knowledge of what God was planning to do with him. He had an overarching knowledge because he would talk about it now and then. But sometimes I think in knowing Jesus, we have to realize he's not necessarily up here. He's also right here. And we're going to talk about that more next, next week. That just as God is working in us, both to his will and for his good pleasure, he did the same with Jesus Christ. There should be some measure of connection in knowing that even the Messiah who was placed on this earth Even the Messiah had to put his trust in his Maker, just like you and just like me. And it's really hard, super hard, especially when you find yourself in that spot where you don't know how things are going to turn out. It's incredibly difficult. But I take comfort in knowing that my Savior, I think he experienced the same type of feeling. Put your faith in God. Great God, thank you so much for what you have given. Lord, you are the creator of all things. You've created this world, and then you've also created perhaps the most special part of creation, and that is our immortal souls found in flesh right here on this planet. We're only here for a brief moment. It's like we're, we're just a vapor. All of a sudden, we'll be gone. But in that moment, you find pleasure. In that moment, we are given the opportunity to glorify you. And whether we've been placed on this earth thousands of years ago or in this spot right now here today, you have this plan. You have many plans. And just as you had plans with Jesus Christ, and just as he knew some things but he didn't know all things, Lord, we find some sense of peace in that and knowing that as we go on this journey with Jesus Christ, that the resolve isn't going to necessarily be clear, but you are in control. Lord, may we have faith in that. God Almighty, I, I want so much to pray that we would have more opportunity for that, but it is extremely unsettling and very uncomfortable and very painful at times to know that the only way out is to look up and to realize that you are the one who provides. God, I think there are people here even right now and they are clinging to a faith in you and it is not easy God, give them strength may they have a measure of peace may they understand that you're in control that come what may you can and you will be glorified. Lord, allow me also to have that peace as a leader and then also just as someone who opens the word of God and shares it with so many people. Allow me to have that peace as well. Allow the leaders, allow the elders here to have that peace. Allow those of us who now leave and then we work your, your gospel, your, your will in marvelous ways in the circles that we are in May we also have the peace of knowing you're in control. God, allow us to have that peace this week. Thank you for your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.